welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. This is Jen from the Empathic Mastery Show, and I have a lovely guest here today who I actually met when I had the privilege of being on her show a while ago. Laura Giles, LCSW, is a licensed clinical social worker, speaker, and author based in Richmond, Virginia. Her passion is helping people achieve their dreams and become empowered to solve their own problems naturally. Welcome, Laura. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be with you again. It is really nice to be with you, too. I know (laughs) we had such a great conversation last time. I'm really looking forward to this one. And I just sort of to let you guys know, we're going to, Laura and I are going to be talking about one of my favorite topics narcissism and or narcissists and empaths. And so, but before we go into that, Laura, I'd love to just talk about your experience as a sensitive person, as an intuitive person, maybe, you know, as an empath, like when did you realize that you were maybe different than the average bear? Like, tell me, tell, tell me about your childhood. That took a while, actually, because I just thought it was normal. I just thought everybody was like that. I mean, unless something stands out that's different, you don't really know. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So in my childhood, everybody had something, um, the ability to connect. And it wasn't strange to talk about that. It was talked about openly and not, not just with the spirit world or Lots of different, um, it's hard to talk about your culture when it's everything you know, unless you're talking about something different. So that's why I'm struggling. Yeah. When I grew up, everybody around us was was Christian. Mm -hmm. And we would go to their church because they're friends and the the bus would come by and the, the missionaries and all would come by. And we would go there because it was just part of the thing that we did in the neighborhood. But it didn't really stand out to me as something different because I... We didn't get into conversations about spirit or sensitivity or anything like that. So I didn't know. Um, I I just thought everybody was sensitive. And being a trauma therapist, when people are emoting and having experiences, you know, and you're sitting with that, you do feel everything. Right. And and because my clients are like that, again, I just thought everybody was like that. Yes, yes. Well, and what's so interesting is, so for the listeners, um, where did you grow up? I mean, you mentioned missionaries. So I'm assuming you were not, you you didn't start necessarily on the continent in the mainland of America. Oh, um, I did. I oh, did. you did? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize we had missionaries in the United we States. We do. <laughs> uh, color- yeah, they would. They came around every summer. There were um, Mormon missionaries. There were other ones too, but I I don't know. They were just attracted to where we lived or something. I'm not really sure, but yeah, they were there every summer. Where, uh, do you mind if I ask, what state did you grow up in or where did you grow up? In Ohio. In Ohio. You were dealing (laughs) with missionaries in Ohio. Wow. I I actually (laughs) spent some time living in Ohio for a period of time. I never in a million years would have dreamed that missionaries would have been like coming around in Ohio, but 
Yeah. I, you know, I just always sort of think of missionaries in exotic climes trying to convert the poor heathens, but, um, wow. So I'm really hearing, you know, Your experience sounds really different than a lot of people. When I'm interviewing a lot of people, their experience is that they grew up in a family of more often of muggles of, um, for lack of a better word, um, you know, sort of, if anybody's not familiar with that term, it is, uh, it comes originally from Harry Potter and it's the idea of sort of people without any extrasensory abilities, without any magical qualities or anything like that. Um, And so a lot of times, many of the people I speak to did experience a very stark contrast because they were the sensitive person in the family and everybody else wasn't. But what I'm hearing you say is that you come from like you come from legacy sensitivity and magical people. Could you share more about that side of it? Because that certainly is that's a very special and very uh, sadly somewhat unique experience in my world or in many with among many of the people I've spoken to? Well, I think it might've been um, different too, because when I was very small, we grew up in a a air force neighborhood. Mm. So they were, it was multicultural as well. And I think that added to the diversity is normal. Yes. So, you know, you're different in your way. The next one's different in their way. And even though I knew we were different, it wasn't like weird to be different because everybody was different in some kind of way. So it just wasn't really anything that we had a conversation about. It was just kind of accepted. I'm just, it's, you know, I, I'm having one of those like, wow, Mm -hmm. it it just, I'm sort of, I'm just trying to put my thoughts together as I'm hearing you speak about this, because I'm like, of course, this makes complete sense. And I'm just struck by the contrast of so many of the conversations I've had where people grow up in much more homogenized environments where they grow up, you know, and where they are not experiencing that kind of diversity. And subsequently, there is, it's almost like because there isn't diversity, there's so much more of a sense of like, when there is one person who's an outlier, they stick out like a sore thumb. And so I'm really hearing you saying you grew up in a much more diverse um, environment. And as a result, it's kind of like everybody was an outlier in some way there. And yeah. so there wasn't the sense of contrast that, um, when you're growing up in a homogenized environment, you, uh, there, there seems to be so much more awareness of like, oh, I am way more sensitive than other people. Yeah, no, it was very, um, communal and everybody in the neighborhood really looked out for each other. So there was a sense of, of care and comfort. And like I said, everybody was different in their own way. So I don't think everybody was sensitive necessarily. And they certainly weren't into the spiritual things that we were into because my mom is an immigrant mm-hmm. um, and my dad is um, ha- is mixed heritage as well. So it was very different, but it, it wasn't in a way that you felt defensive or that you felt strange or because we had such a wonderful neighborhood that was so caring and everybody looked out for each other. I mean, you did, you didn't have to need for anything. Somebody would give you whatever you needed. If you were hurt that somebody would come out and help you, you know, the, there was always ladies at home to look out for the kids that were playing in the streets. I mean, we were always out playing and it was so free and so just safe. Wow. That sounds wonderful. 
I just, yeah, I feel blessed. I really yeah, do. Yeah, really. It just, that just sounds so incredibly wonderful. Now, um, I know that you and I, that your podcast is um, Modern Animism, right? Am I? Yeah. And so obviously you have a spiritual path, very some, somewhat similar to mine. Um, was this something that you inherited? Was this a legacy? Did you? Was oh, yes. This, yeah. Yeah. So yes. you, so your lineage is, yes. yeah. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about that? And um, um, again, it's hard to talk about because it's just the, the, the lived experience of it. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I mean, it'd be like when I ask new clients, you know, tell me about your culture. They, I don't know. What's my culture? You know, <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, what I can tell you is, is that it was kind of like that container. I don't know how that neighborhood vibe developed, but we also had that within my family from a, in a different kind of way, because, you know, your mom, typically the hand rocks a cradle is a hand that rules the world. And she came from an animist background and that's just her. And yeah. so that's what she gave to us. And so it was something we didn't really talk about, but it was kind of invisible and that formed the foundation of my life for sure. So everything is sacred, alive and connected. And that has been uh, with me for my first breath, I think. Yes, 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 absolutely. And so I'm imagining, I was just thinking for anybody who's not familiar with the term animism, would you say that the definition of animism is that everything is sacred and alive and filled with spirit? Would that be the way you describe, you would define it? That's the way that I define it. Yes. And, yeah. and I think science shows that too. I mean, everything is energy, energy vibrates, it's intelligent, it responds to thought. So I don't think there's any um, disagreement with that at right. all. Right, right. Well, I, unless you go to seminary. <laughs> um, well, you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, that was, that was, I mean, I, I'm also, I, you know, when I, we were learning the terms for spirituality, the one that sort of landed the closest for me was panentheist in the sense of mm -hmm. my experience of the world is that everything is filled with the divine. Everything is sacred. Everything is alive. Everything has, uh, everything has spirit. Everything has, uh, just everything is. Uh, very similar. And, um, you know, and to me and you, this is just like a duh, like, I right. mean, it's, yeah. it's like oxygen. And yet, yeah. and I was not raised Christian either. And so it was very interesting for me choosing to come into graduate school and go to seminary and have the experience of being like, wow, these people's perception of the world is completely different. Like, you know, like there are these people who really do believe that like the divine is the guy in the sky and everything else is devoid of this same divinity, which to me is just so bizarre. But and I and, and I'm thinking I know in my own experience that the contrast of being in places where I suddenly was like, wow, you don't experience the world this way. Like this isn't the way you experience it. And so I'm hearing for you that you really, like you were really steeped in this sacred sense of the world um, for quite a while. So what was the point for you where you realized that, like, I don't know, one of these things is not like the other? Like, what was the point where you kind of went, oh, I'm experiencing the world in a different way than other people are? It actually happened pretty late. Yeah. 
So it was probably, let's see, about eight years ago, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, I, so I take people on sacred travel tours all over the world. And um, it, it's mostly to connect with the land, but sometimes it's people as well. And just to experience what is the energy like here. Mm. And uh, we went to a Native American reservation. And it was just, I'd never been in a place outside of my own family where spirit was absolutely everywhere. Yeah. It was in the land and it wasn't just my family, but everybody, all of the Native American people walked in that knowing. And I felt like I was going to explode. I just, I had to share that. And it took me a while to figure out what it was. I mean, it was in the way that the, the wind moved through the grass. It was in the way that the birds, you know, you're looking at a single bird just flying through the air and it was just breathtaking mm-hmm. or the way the mountains looked. It, it was just so alive. And, yeah. I, you know, I work as a trauma therapist and I, and, and I think the core of any mental illness is the fear of abandonment yeah. and the disconnection. Disconnection. And when I'm like, okay, it's right here. (laughs) And how wonderful this could be if you're in a community where this exists. I mean, I had that in a little bit as a child, but not in the same way that it was on the reservation. Mm. The Mm. the people were connected. Everybody looked out for each other. But it was just on a level at the reservation that was just off the chart. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me as that like, it's almost like color on the television, like back in the days when we could actually like control the knobs on the TV and we could dial up the color and things. It sounds to me like you grew up in an environment where maybe the color was at five and you got to the, you got to this reservation and all of a sudden it's like the color is dialed up to 10 and you're like, oh, this is what this really feels like. This is what that experience is like. And yeah, I I have had a couple moments in my life where I have been, where the color, you know, where it's dialed all the way up like that. And it is truly, it is such a holy and sacred experience. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you um, of all of the places that you've ever been to, or that, you know, that you've, you've taken people on tours, what are your, what was your favorite place? And I'm sort of imagining maybe this was the favorite place or. (laughs) If I had to, if I had to just pick one, I would have to say Egypt because it was the first Mm. and it was mind blowing. I was not expecting it at all. I um, was really just going for a getaway. I'd been working, 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 working. And it was a spontaneous thing. Oh, I got to get out of here. It's easy. You know, it was cheap. I could just go there at a you know, without a lot of planning and things. And that's what I did. And it was very similar-ish in that the land and and the people were so connected. Egypt is like you have this layer of old Egypt, ancient Egypt, and then modern Egypt. So the old is very feminine feeling. The the new is very masculine. So it feels very whole. Mm, mm -hmm. And the people are poor. Most Mm -hmm. of them are poor and humble and yet so heart filled. So there's there's a um I think the earth's is it the heart chakra is at Giza at the Giza pyramids. Mm. And mm. you can really feel that. So I mean, you know, if you if you're tuned in, you're really feeling that it, it every single day was just magical. Mm. It was in everything. It was in the taxi drive. It was in the shopping experience and the food. So the little mundane things, 
that you just take for granted. I could describe them to you and it would feel like, oh, what's so special about that? But it was the way that it all felt. Yeah. Because yeah. everything was just so alive and yeah. so vibrant and so authentic. Yeah. There was no artifice. Like here, everything is about selling something and looking shiny and new. And there's there's so much planned about it. And, you know, I'm going to do this for the effect and the like and the that kind of thing. And there's none of that mm. there. Mm. None of it. Mm. You know, what's so interesting, and it feels to me like there's a reason, there's absolutely a reason we're having. So I have a friend who is literally in Cairo right now, uh-uh. <laughs> in who just, you know, like with posting photographs of like the pyramids at, at Giza at night and um, has just been like singing the praises of yeah. Egypt and yeah. is just in love with Egypt right now. And so it is like, it's just so interesting that like, like literally within the last like 24 hours, I just keep hearing about Egypt and how, how magical and sacred and wonderful and how wonderful the people are, because that is, that is something that she's been talking about too. And interestingly, she also um, was saying that she just went and saw a a dentist and basically got like a crown that would have cost like, like at least, you know, like 1500 bucks or something here in the United States. She paid like 130 bucks and just got like wow. this gorgeous crown replaced. And so she, she was apparently dental work is really, really wonderfully wonderful and reasonable in Egypt. So that total non sequitur, but just, Hey, if you need <laughs> dental work, go to Egypt. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I'm loving how that experience of being in these places where it's almost like the color is dialed up has given you that sense of, oh, not everything is, is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you spoke briefly, or we're talking about disconnection and about your sense of how trauma and I mean, I, and all mental illness, and I would agree with you completely that I think all men, I, I believe personally that everything that is the problem in our world today is because we've bought into a lie that is that we're disconnected, that we're not all part of, you know, the way I I think of it is we're all cells in the body of the earth. And yet we've been buying into this idea that we're not, that we're separate, that we're different, that we're not part of it. And so let's talk about like what your experience with disconnection, like, like say more about your experience, what you, what you've noticed around the impact of disconnection. So as a trauma therapist, I was trained, you know, in a Western school and you have to have a treatment plan. You have to have a diagnosis, la, la, la. And the, the client is in control of what they want. So I ask you, hey, Jennifer, how can I help you today? You tell me, well, you know, I'd really like to get my relationship back on track. And so that's what I would do, which mm-hmm. makes sense to me. I mean, you're the customer. I should be giving you what you want. But and, and that's how I worked for a long time. You know, you get what you want and satisfy a customer. But at the end of the day, if you're not aware that the root of that is the disconnection, you're never going to ask for that. Right. And you're only going to go so far. So that's kind of where my work is heading now, because mm-hmm. I don't want people to just be okay. I want people to be vibrant and juicy and have an amazing experience, a fulfilling, connected experience. So I'm doing things now more to help people to see the difference between, it's like you said, with the color, how saturated can we get it? 
So once you know that it can be a 10, you're going to want that 10 and you're going to want to know how to do that and how to bring that in your life. And the changes are not that big, really. But part of that, too, is you have to see through all the phoniness. Yeah. See through all the sales and the, you know, we are sold a bunch of stuff. You know, you have to have this degree. You have to have this fancy car. You have to have this or else you're a failure. And none of that stuff really matters. I mean, each of everybody's poor. Yeah. And the Native American reservation, everybody's poor. And it did not matter at all. One of the most spiritually connected experiences I've ever had in my life was in the powwow ring. When the veterans came in and they called to the ancestors, they came. And it was as if it exploded by like five times and you could feel the energy of those people. And most of them didn't have regalia. They didn't have, it's not like these fancy powwows where everybody's looking beautiful. You know, they were just dancing in what they had. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was priceless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about, you know, we're fed a lie, we are fed a lie. The yeah. stuff that we spend our time and our money on really does not matter. I uh, preach. <laughs> preach. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You know, the amount of energy and effort that so many people are making these days to get enough traction, to get enough, like to to hack the algorithm, to get their message out. In some ways, it is just so incredibly heartbreaking because it's like, you know, I mean, there's that Mary Oliver poem, Wild Geese. Tell me, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And, you know, it is just so sad. You know, you Something you're talking about that I want to kind of unpack from the standpoint of um, from the standpoint of sort of the mode, you know, therapy and where you were talking about starting, you were sort of trained that, you know, somebody comes to you, you you're going to be client sort of client directed. You're listening mm-hmm. to them. You're responding to them. You're moving from them. And what I've and and what's interesting is as an EFT master trainer and as a practitioner um, and somebody with my own degree in psychology and religion, one of the things I've really noticed is that there's an incredibly fine balance between meeting somebody where they are, honoring what their truth is and honoring them versus having an agenda and being in that place of, I know what you need and I'm going to drive the bus here. And I don't think that that's what you're talking about because it's it's like in my experience, there's like my goal is always to not bring my ego into the process for people because it feels to me like once I my ego gets in there and is like, I don't know what that person needs. I think it's a very different thing. And yet, as you were saying, it's like if somebody has no idea that the root cause, the problem is that they are utterly bereft and disconnected, then they're going to be looking at the surface layer of the issue, which Mm -hmm. is that their marriage is challenged and that they're, you know, they're scrapping with each other and they're unhappy. And so, you know, obviously we want to get them down into the deeper layer. I'm wondering if you could speak to, and I'm, does, is what I'm talking about making sense in terms of, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, just sort of speaking to the difference between being agenda driven as a therapist or as a healer verse and, and, you know, and, and sort of versus and, and sort of like being kind of like, you know, meet the need of the customer versus fall, like really being client led, but simultaneously 
leading the client into things they can't see? Yeah. So um, in March, I had a four-week series on boundaries. Lots of clients need help with boundaries. So that's something that they could say, yes, I need that. Okay. So this was their desire to get better with that. But the content was totally not CBT. So it wasn't like, here's your skill. Let's practice the skill. Can you understand why you do this? It wasn't mental at all. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we did was touch-based. A lot of what we did was nonverbal. So we would move around the room and notice the space. How does this feel? Now move closer. How does this feel? Turn your back to each other. How does this feel? You know, so they would get a sense of, oh, this doesn't feel good or this does feel good. Or, oh, what I really wanted was to be touched. Or what I really wanted was for you to get away from me. And I think you have a felt sense of that. It's totally different than having intellectual experience of something. Yes. People understand things intellectually, but what does it feel like in your body? I mean, we're talking about being an empath. That's what we're talking about. How does my body feel? And if you're not incorporating that into your healing, then I think you are missing out on a huge resource. Yes. So these were things that they were discovering for themselves. I didn't have to say anything. And it went like 10 times deeper than if we had just talked about what boundaries are. Absolutely. You remind me as you were describing it, I had the privilege of attending a workshop at there's this event that happens annually that my colleague John D. Whitest runs called the Spring Energy Event. And it's um all kinds of energy, you know, energy psychology oriented therapists and healers and other people. And this woman, Liz Hart, who um, is now on the other side, Liz did this day-long workshop all about the somatic experience of, yeah. of boundaries and really like having, and she ran us through these exercises that were very somatic and very felt where she really gave us the opportunity to notice when as, as healers, we were sort of grounded and in our core and kind of like, you know, like, like vertical, if for lack of a better word, but just sort of like not wobbling at all versus when we were finding ourselves leaning into something and kind Mm -hmm. of getting into somebody's stuff versus when we were having experiencing aversion and kind of leaning back out of it. And it was so powerful to embody the experience and understand what it was like to have the felt sense of this experience, as opposed to the intellectual sense of like, I need to have better boundaries as a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it was nice too for, because it was a group, you know, people could witness. And when you, if you grow up in a place where there's not good boundaries, then what you witness is poor boundaries. Right. So when you're witnessing the, the healthy boundaries and Feeling what that feels like for them and for you, it's just way more powerful. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. So I think I really like community work, group work, because I think there's so much we can learn from each other. Yes, yes. Well, and I think um, when it comes, when we are allowed, when we get the opportunity to work in groups, we also get to like so much more stuff can come up. There's yeah. so many more mirrors. There's so much more reflection. Yeah. There's so much more opportunity to discover things. And I mean, there's even, I think it's in the Bible, that saying of, you know, when two or more are gathered in my name. And I do think that there is something about like that amplification that happens when we have more people. And um, it just is so much more powerful. 
So I know we, you know, we talk about talking about narcissists and I'm sure that the audience is like, (laughs) when are we going to talk about narcissists? So um, I'm imagining that there's probably a fairly, like I'm, I'm sort of imagining that disconnection or feeling disconnected and narcissism, like there's an intersection between that. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could start there and see what opens up from that piece of conversation. Yeah. So I'm a trauma therapist. Um, Almost everyone in my practices has PTSD or CPTSD Mm -hmm. and borderline narcissism that is all right in there too. Yeah. So um, a lot of my clients are narcissists. Wow. Yeah. They say narcissists don't go to therapy, but they do. Um, Typically it's because of, you know, I'm going to leave you if you don't get some help, that kind of thing. But some of them are very aware that they're disconnected. Mm-hmm. And some of them are really distressed about that. Yeah. And they know that it exists and they want it. So while I am on the page of, you know, if the best thing for you to do is probably not have a relationship with one um, because it is just so toxic and painful yeah. and you're not going to save them. They're suffering from the disconnection too. Right. right. And when you don't know how to do anything about that, and you have so much shame and it is so deep that, you know, as soon as you get vulnerable, your first um, impulse is to strike at the person so that they don't strike at you. Yeah. Then the outlook for that is not really good. Yeah. Yeah. So they do get better in some ways, but does that change? It hasn't for me yet. <laughs> I would like to say that that day is coming, but it hasn't for me yet. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So I'm wondering if like we have in some way, let's actually talk about the definitions or the diagnosis of narcissism. Let's actually define it. And because I think that we have a very over, like, I think we have an inflated sense of what a narcissist is in our culture and that there is a way in which like we're looking for very extreme behaviors, you know, the extremely abusive controlling X who it's all it's it's all about them 24/7 or certain politicians who shall remain nameless who are very 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 self-absorbed but i'm wondering like what does it mean to be a narcissist what does that you know what does it really look like yeah so the um the dsm definition i don't see anybody like that right yeah Yeah. And I've worked in domestic violence. I've worked in courts. I've worked in a prison. There's probably some in the prison. But what I'm talking about is kind of I think it's actually bred by our culture Mm -hmm. because we are so um, we're number one driven and which I think is good, good, healthy self-esteem. But we're also entitled. We're also it's kind of like in the old days, the aristocrats, you know, they were all about, well, maintaining their status and marrying the best and preserving their money. Well, that's trickled down to us so that that's like your average guy. You know, we've got to be the best. You got to keep the name up, got to keep up appearances. And and so it is it's in our culture. Yes. And when it gets to the point where you can't see anything else, when you're perfectionistic, when you're you know, it's all about that, then you pick up these narcissistic traits. You may not be a full-blown narcissist DSM, but it does give you enough that you're miserable Mm -hmm. and you can't Mm -hmm. connect. And, you know, you are anxious about 
being vulnerable with people because what would they say if they know that I, you know, had some weird habit or something? You, we just can't be human anymore. Right, right, right. Well, and um, one of the things that, you know, that I found interesting around the idea of narcissists is that we tend to look at the narcissists in terms of the ones who are just like really bombastic and really over the top. Like, I think that's the general idea that our culture has. But we also have the narcissists who are kind of more on the sort of the victim narcissist or the one where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all about the misery, the difficulty. And one of the things I've also noticed is that there's there's a way in which you can even have people who are may identify as empaths, may identify as very highly sensitive, but it's sort of like everybody else's misery is all about them. Like where there's just this perseverate, like people, other people are having a hard time, but they're the ones who are like losing all the sleep over it and Mm -hmm. just constantly perseverating. And while on like from the outside, they might look like very selfless, very altruistic, very, very caring people. The truth is that it's their drama and their engagement with the stuff yeah. that it's not really about that other person because they're yeah. the one like it's they're the ones who are taking up all the oxygen in the room with their distress about the fact that that other person is distressed. I don't know right. if that's something yeah. you noticed or experienced. Oh, for sure. Social yeah. media is full of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I, in my office, we don't entertain that. Yeah. We don't entertain that at all. So if somebody is really committed in doing that, then I'm not the person to help them. I'm imagining that people don't come to you because they're like, I'm a narcissist and I need help. I'm imagining it's more likely that they're like, my life isn't working and I, and I want it and I'm lonely and I'm miserable and I want this to be better. So do you help them to recognize their narcissism or um, like, how do you navigate that? Well, the cool thing about the way that I work is because a lot of it is uh, right brain stuff. So it's not words. We don't talk about story. I don't even need to know what your story is. It's really body-based, energy-based stuff. Yeah. Um, It kind of comes intuitively. Yeah. Because when you take all the crap out of the way, what's underneath there is you. And it is love. Yeah. So if I've been blaming my mom my whole life for my stuff, and then I realized, oh my God, she did the best she could. Now we say that all the time. We do. But but when you feel it, right, it's a totally different thing. Totally different thing. And people get a felt sense when they release. It's a felt sense. It's a knowing. It's not intellectual at all. So then they start to see their stuff, and then they start to see how they contributed, and hopefully they take responsibility. If you do it enough times, they do start to take responsibility because the shame goes away too. Mm. They just realize, you know, okay, mom was, you know, she's human and dad was human and my next door neighbor was human. Oh gosh, you know what? Maybe it's okay for me to be human too. And you've got to be there if you're going to have relationships. And I think that was one of the things that I really got from my first trip to Egypt because they're real, that, that was the poorest that I've ever seen of any person in my life. Wow. And up to that point. And they were so joyful and they mm-hmm. were so generous. And my idea of poverty up until then is that poverty is misery. And you want to avoid that at all costs because you then what would you possibly do? And it's just not true. Right. 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 Well, and I mean, this is this could be an entire 
book. This could be an entire episode, you know, multiple episodes. Just it could be the theme of an entire podcast of just thinking about like what our culture defines as poverty and what our culture defines as wealth and richness, and yeah. how so often. I, it just, I mean, I, I was having a conversation with some friends the other day about the fact that at this point in time in America, there are storage facilities popping up like mushrooms everywhere because people have so much stuff that they don't even have space in their own homes, their own apartments for it. They have to like put it into storage units because they've got more stuff than they even know what to do with. And this soul level of disconnection, this soul sickness that I think we are suffering from as a culture where so many people are like pursuit, like the idea of material wealth is the solution. And yet, if anything, it's driving us even further and further and further apart. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Because when I first started traveling, it was absolutely a luxury. You know, if you had gone to a few countries, you stood out like, oh, you're a world traveler. Everybody travels now. Yeah, But they take these pictures and they make these selfies and look at I was here. Oh, look at this. Look at this. But they didn't experience anything. You know, when I went to not to put, pat myself on the back or anything, but I think as a sensitive person, when you're picking up all of this stuff, it is a totally different experience of that place. Yes. It's it's the earth. It's the people. It's the smells. It's the it's the vibe. It's all of it. And and there's so much to incorporate into that, that can be transformative if you let yourself be there Yes. versus just running around taking pictures and shopping. Right. Right. Well, and it's like, you know, even just thinking about like being at a concert and how everybody's got their cell phone out now and they're filming the music so that there's this way that it's like, you're not experiencing the song in the first hand. You're sort of making, right. you're sort of fantasizing that someday you're going to watch, you're going to post this in social media. You're going to watch this. And I will say, I am certainly guilty of certain concerts that I've been to where like, there's been a song that I really love and out comes the cell phone. And, and in some ways I'm grateful that I have the memory locked in. But on the other hand, it's like, how much of the, the lived experience are we missing out on? because we are turning it into an influencer moment. Right. Yeah. 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 I was really lucky with my mom when it came to traveling. My mother was very much really loved to have the experience of like the real experience. So we would often take public transportation in different Mm -hmm. places. We would go to the actual like the native markets as opposed to the tourist markets. And so my mom was my mom was way ahead of her time in 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 many ways around this because she wanted that real experience. So often we would not stay at the resort. We would stay at, you know, a much more sort of small, quiet, you know, like no frills kind of space. But I feel like as a result of that, I definitely got a much stronger sense of the actual place. Yeah than I would have if I had just stayed, you know, like gotten on the tour bus and, right. you know, stayed in the five-star hotel. So yeah, yeah it's it's a very, very different experience traveling. Pro- yeah. I and well, and I don't know if you ever saw um The Sheltering Sky. It was a Bernardo Bertolucci movie that came mm-hmm. out many years ago. Um and it had Deborah Winger and I think John Malkovich in it, but it was about these people who ended up in like the Middle East and Morocco and a couple other places. 
And it was sort of this idea of the difference between perceiving yourself as a traveler versus seeing yourself as a tourist. And they were very clear. They were like, well, we're travelers. We're not tourists. And I do think that there is definitely a difference between sort of being a traveler or being somebody who has that experience of the place versus being a tourist. And I think we could apply that to our lives. I think a lot of people are tourists in their own life. Yes. And I think the narcissist is definitely a tourist in his own life. You know, that's definitely selfie, selfie, look at me, look at me, highlight reel experience. Absolutely. You you have to be willing to get dirty and to cry and to to fail if you're going to really live. Right, right, right. And yet, um, as you were saying, you have to be willing to get dirty and you have to be willing to cry. And yet on the other side of it, it's so funny because you get these performative, performative dirt, performative crying, (laughs) where um, it's not necessarily authentic, but it's, you know, I mean, it's just so sad, like even real, you know, just like how, how there's a way in which people will try to use perform performative emotion to get that kind of response and that get that kind of reaction. For me, one of the things that I believe about narcissists at the very core is that there is a profound lack, like a profound wound of feeling invisible, a profound wound of feeling like there is this deep disconnection and that so much of the behavior, so much of the the performativeness, whether it's perseverating or just being over-the-top bombastic, feels to me like it's very much about trying to get attention, like trying to be seen, trying to yes. be, be be held and to be acknowledged and known. And yet um, it just, it's gotten so, I mean, I don't know. It's almost like as we're having this conversation, I wonder if anyone in America is really, is really exempt from narcissism. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do have pockets of places that are safe. Yeah. Um, and I see women leading that for mm-hmm. so things like moon circles and talking circles, you know, they're, they're vulnerable places where you can show up. And so I lead both and we just actually had one and um, somebody was over the top. <laughs> I think it was authentic for them at the time, but they were certainly acting out. And I mean, you, it's your time, it's your space. You can do whatever you wanted to. And it was already theirs. They didn't need to, be dramatic to to have it, but they, I think that was happening out of habit maybe. Right. Right. But that happens a few times and then you kind of clicks and be like, Oh, you know what? I don't, I don't have to do that. Right. Right. So fortunately (laughs) we have it often enough that there's, if there's one, there's one and, and not more than one at a time. Yeah. I've noticed with some of the groups that I've been involved in or been facilitating that more often than not, if somebody is new and they're in a place where they've maybe never really been heard, there's a lot of, like, they'll take up a lot of space initially. Like, even if there's guidelines or suggestions of like, let's all keep it, you know, keep your share to X amount of time. And there's inevitably that one person who just kind of goes a little bit beyond it or just takes up that little bit of extra room. Most of the time I've noticed that people will kind of like they need it's almost like they need that extra little bit of oxygen at first because they've been so deprived and yeah. then once they start to feel the support of the community they they sort of come around and they sort of fall into the rhythm of the group 
But every so often I'll notice certain people where they don't seem to understand their relationship to the space in relation to other people. And they always take that extra minute. They always take that extra space. They always, like, it's always just a little bit off. I'm curious, as a facilitator of groups, what do you, or if you were, you know, you know, I guess even in a, in a in one-on-one relationship, what would you suggest that we, somebody does if you do have one of those people who just is consistently taking up that X, like they're, they're just consuming more resources than really is allotted for them. I don't have a problem setting a boundary with that and just shutting it down. I mean, the rules are established and, you know, I'm, I'm, I was going to say I'm loose with that. I'm not loose with that <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's everybody's time and it's everybody's space. And, you know, some people are more chatty than others. But when you're consistently that way, then you really don't have a sense of space and shared time. And and that's what they we're there to do. So I think you're not playing well with others and I'm okay with shutting it down. Yeah. Yeah. I think and you have to, to maintain yeah. the integrity of the event. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so Going back to, I mean, one of the things that in, in, you were talking about earlier that I want to sort of circle back around to was the dance of like some of the boundaries or the rules that you have with the work of what's not going to fly. And I kind of heard you saying, you know, this is not the place where you get to um, spend all your energy and time complaining about how your mom or your dad or this other person done you wrong. like that that this is that there there's like it's about and so I'm at least that's sort of what I heard you saying is kind of like this is not about just going you know I don't know like just recapitulating the same thing over and over again and I'm wondering like what instead do you invite people to step into in the work that you guys are doing well if that's where somebody is they can go there but I think when everybody else is deeper and when they are, I mean, that's, that tends to be real surface stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm superficially upset with work, you know, well, what's underneath that when everybody else is going deep and doing that, then it seems, I think kind of silly be like, Oh, that was my contribution. Maybe I need to be more still and listen a bit more or, you know, because like you said that we're all mirrors and if what you're getting mirrored back to you is maybe more, um, sensitive and more useful in terms of feedback, then you might want to give the same type of contribution because it just feels more fair. Mm -hmm. It's it's a a reciprocity energy. If I'm giving you a steak, you don't want to give me a cherry. (laughs) No, it doesn't feel fair. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Or a piece of bologna. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, When it comes to what is, so I guess what I would say is when it comes to like some of those first steps of like you were saying earlier about when you start to realize that the color has been dialed down in your life, that you're not having the opportunity to live to the extent that you want to be living. What are, you said that there's simple things. What would you say is kind of like, where do we start? Oh, I think with the people who are closest to you, So I've always had this with my family and my family and I get together a lot. 
I'm very fortunate in that. And I noticed in retrospect that when I got my first corporate job, I did the same thing with them. So I would just take that environment and invite them to be part of it. And some people wanted it and some people didn't. And then as I grew up and went, I just went, did my whole life that way. <laughs> you know, when I went to Egypt the first time I went by myself mm. and I was like, I have got to share this. So that's why I started doing tours. And so then I, I brought people and started sharing in that way. And probably everything I do is like that because it's just too good to keep to myself. So it's not like huge bunches of people, but just imagine if everybody did that. If you did that with two or three people, we could have this done in a real short period of time. I mean, and I think we all have something to share. It doesn't have to be the same thing, but if you show up authentically and with a willing heart to, to be there and to witness and to give and to receive, the magic just happened. Mm. Well, and we, when I was in Egypt, one of the things that happened was um, for the first time is we were out in the desert and there was a wedding, so a desert wedding. So they're peasants and everybody contributed. They killed a camel, sorry, animal lovers, but everybody ate, everybody ate. And the yeah. wedding lasted for seven days. Seven and days. that's just how they roll. Yeah. So that's what I mean. You know, it, it's stone soup every day. Yeah. Everybody contributes a little and, and it's not necessarily, you know, somebody's drumming, somebody's bringing some food. Somebody's sewing, somebody's doing something, but together they make it something wonderful. Yes. And I think yes. we can all do that in whatever way that we can with what resources that we have. Absolutely. Well, and we've been, we, you know, as a culture right now, we are being encouraged to silo and silo and silo. And that everybody's like, there's this, this sort of guarding, you know, sitting like we're becoming dragons on our hordes of, <laughs> of things. And yet, you know, what you just said is it's like when something's so good, you just, you know, it's like, it's too good not to share it. Yeah. And I, it really sounds to me like in some ways, like maybe that's really where we get to start is it's too good. It's just like, sometimes things are just too good not to share. Yeah. And maybe the question is what in your life is too good not to share? I love that. Yeah. And how can you start sharing it? Mm -hmm. We all have something. Yeah. Yeah. Laura, I know I, I told you I was going to say this and I always say this at every single time and I mean it every single time. I cannot believe how quickly the time has gone by. We're coming in on the top of the hour and I want to be sure that we have a chance for, you know, for you to say anything that just feels really, really essential and really crucial. So if there was what, if anything, feels like I will kick myself if I do not say this before I'm done with this conversation. I hope that everybody that's listening will risk loving just a little, just a little. It makes such a difference, not, not just for the people that you give it to, but for you. I think that's what it all comes down to. Just, just a little. We all need a little bit more. Oh, risk loving. That's so beautiful. This conversation has been so delicious and so totally different than the narcissistic way we talk about narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> so often the conversations are like, he done me wrong. <laughs> you know? And I just really, I mean, this has just been such a delicious conversation because it really feels like it's been taught. It's it from what I'm really taking from this conversation for me is 
it's really about turning the lens away from looking at the individual ego in the mirror and really looking at the circle of life that is around me and yes. recognizing how much I am part of community as opposed to just kind of, you know, siloed in my own little misery. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the key, the way out. It's yeah. totally the way out. Yeah. Yeah. So I always love to ask this question um, towards the end. It's interesting because for you, you know, so many of my, of the empaths that I interview um, did have childhoods where they felt lost and bereft and confused and like where stuff was really hard. And so it's kind of like going back and giving a message to that part that was going through a difficult time. But I really believe, what I believe is that podcasts are magical and that not only do they project, is there like, in you know, they exist long after this conversation has been had, you know, years from now, people are going to be listening to this. I also believe that, that that message ripples back in time as well. And I sort of think of this recording as like a ribbon in time that can fold over and we can touch a point where you where you can give a message back to a part of yourself that needs that message. So my questions to you are, one, the first piece is where in time, who is it? What part of you needs a message? Where are you going back to? And what are you going to tell her? I think kindergarten. Kindergarten was the first time I saw people who were not like my family. Mm. And it was very exciting. <laughs> And I would tell that part of me to hold on to that excitement, that curiosity, that wonder, because it's just going to serve you so well. And I'm so glad that I never lost that because I know a lot of people do. Yeah. Right about that time. You know, you go you go to kindergarten, first grade, and that's when you start to shut down. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you start to be judged and made to feel like you're not enough or something. And thank God, <laughs> by what miracle that didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, and I think it has made all the difference. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe this was the thing we gave that message to her and she took That's it right. yeah. with it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Laura, this conversation has just been so delicious. It has been so rich. I feel like you've taken me to Egypt. You've taken me to the res. You have taken me so many beautiful places. And my, I just feel, I feel like my color has been dialed up from this conversation. And I really hope that the listeners color, like they feel like it's dialed up for them too, because this has just been so juicy. So how do people get in touch with you? And also you mentioned that you're an author. You do you have yes. books? People um, I have I have all kinds of books. I have journals and I have I just recently um, finished writing a children's book. <gasps> and it's in the illustration stage right now. And I'm writing um, mythology and fairy tales. <laughs> oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. Um, yeah. And so how do people, so how do people find you? How do people find your books? Are you doing tours? Is this something that you, that are, that people can, can do with you at this point in time? Yes. So probably the best place to reach me is laurajiles.org. Um, I have multiple different uh, websites, but they're all connected to that one. Excellent. 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 And so laurajiles.org, you guys, it will yes. also be in the show notes if you're just listening to this on the road or some other place and you can't write it down. So come on over to empathicmasteryshow.com and check out this episode with Laura. 
Um, and you can find all of the all of the things that you need will be in the show notes. Laura, thank you so much for such a rich, wonderful conversation. I just feel my cup is is full. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.